This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Killar jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Thank you listeners for tuning into another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me, as always, is the fantasy hockey robot himself, Brian Kahn. Thank you, Elon, for that spirited introduction to the show. I'm so excited to be here to talk hockey, fantasy hockey with you for another week. And thank you to our listeners who have just been coming out in droves lately. We really appreciate it. And also thank you to DauberHockey.com for presenting Keeping Carlson for the 2015-16 NHL season. Brian, it sounds like you just were giving an Oscar speech or something with all these thank yous. But I agree. Thank you, of course, to the listeners. And yes, we are so excited to be presented by Dauber Hockey. We mentioned it last week on the show. I guess we announced it. It is official. We get to be presented by the premier website for fantasy hockey tools and advice and articles. It's got everything. You go there. Just uh, yesterday, Marek Zidlitschke gets signed by the Islanders. Already there's an article up discussing the fantasy impact of that. You just kind of got to check that website out every day to see all the new articles coming out. Of course, they also have when the season starts, your starting goalies, your line combinations being updated all the time. Crucial to do well in fantasy hockey. You need to know these things. Also, they have a draft guide, which is still available. If you want to get all of Dauber's projections and all of his analysis to prepare for your draft, you got to go grab it. It gets updated all the time. I'm sure it's already updated with Marek Zitlitschke on the Islanders. Oh, I'm sure it has been. And right now, there's actually like a whole package of stuff available to you for just $10. And it even includes a playoff draft guide for later in the year. Yeah, so check out DauberHockey.com. But let's talk about today's show, Brian, because we've got a doozy. It's the preseason series. But we're still just churning out content because we've got so much to talk about. It's going to be a bit of a potpourri. We've got a bit of news from around the NHL that's happened in the past couple of weeks. So we're going to discuss the things that we think are fantasy relevant. And then I recorded an interview earlier this week with a patron of ours, Jeff Good, one of our very valued patrons, one of the most active guys on the Facebook group. And Jeff is an expert in auction drafts. And Brian, I think you'll agree with me that you and I are not. And so it was really great to have Jeff on and talk all about auction draft strategies and dynamics. It's a really great interview. I think you guys are really going to like it. But first, let's get to our top fantasy hockey headline of the week, or I guess of the past couple weeks. Let's talk about Cody Franson signing with the Buffalo Sabres. And this is a guy who's probably going to slip under a lot of people's radars because, you know, he had that horrible end to the year last year with Nashville. After getting traded from Toronto, he only got four points in 23 games. He was hardly even used. He averaged 15 minutes a game. It was a real disaster for Cody Franson, who had been having a pretty decent season with the Leafs. He had 32 points in 55 games. The year before, he had 33 points. The year before that, he had 29 points in 45 games in the lockout shortened season. So this has been a valuable fantasy defenseman, a half point per game or more type of guy for the most part. Now he goes to the Sabres. So obviously the question to you, Brian, is A, is this good for Cody Franson and his fantasy value? And B, who is the real Cody Franson? Is it the guy who sucked in Nashville or the guy who was pretty decent in Toronto? I think I'm going to try to answer both at once, Elon, and say this is good for Cody Franson and that he is more of the Toronto Cody Franson than the one we saw in Nashville. And that Buffalo situation actually more closely mirrors Toronto's than Nashville's did. And I think that bodes well for Cody Franson. Let's just review one more time who he is. We've been over this before. 
with Toronto, Franson was a pretty good defenseman. Maybe not sure shot top pairing material, but at the very least, he was a top four guy who could handle the top pairing assignments when he got them. And he held up very well as a Leaf. He had several good seasons there. And last season, you know, if we were talking about this in February, Elon, we'd be just lavishing him with praise, talking about he was on pace for his most productive season ever. But then the wheels did fall off when he went to Nashville. He had an abysmal 23 games played to end the regular season as he watches ice time, opportunity, and points all dwindle. Now, we posed the chicken and egg question here before. Did Franson lose minutes because he wasn't scoring, or was he not scoring because he was losing minutes? And I don't know the answer, but I don't think it's going to be too relevant in my evaluation of him going into this fantasy season. His underlying numbers in Nashville were actually pretty good in the ice time that he did see. He just wasn't having, you could say, the pucks bounce his way. He had a low on ice shooting percentage, which was probably just one piece of the puzzle, but it is at least some indicator that things just were not going so smoothly for him as a member of the Predators. Now, let's keep in mind that Cody Franson's career high in points is 33, although he's been on pace to grab more than that in seasons that have been, say, shortened or when he got traded to Nashville. So I think he can score points, but we're not expecting him to blossom into like a 45, 50-point guy all of a sudden. I think he's going to be somebody that the Sabres lean on this season, and I think he'll be up for the challenge seeing as how he did perform in Toronto with Dion Phaneuf last season. So I think you'd be safe penciling him in for at least, you know, 35 points and consider a bunch of those coming on the power play too. Yeah, I think another big thing about whether or not you should pick up Cody Franson is what do you think the Buffalo Sabres are going to be like? Because last year, no one on the Buffalo Sabres was valuable. Like Tyler Myers on the top power play as the top defenseman didn't matter, was useless. And so if it's the same this year, then whatever, you wouldn't want Cody Franson no matter what opportunity he gets. But as we've been talking about so much over the summer, this is going to be a completely new look Buffalo Sabres team. The power play is going to have all new players like Evander Kane and Ryan O'Reilly and Jack Eichel. And if they're able to click and start scoring some goals and Cody Franson is the main guy on the top power play and in the top defense pairing, this could be a really great situation for him. So it's definitely going to be an interesting story to watch. And he is definitely going to be the type of guy that you can sneakily pick up late in your draft and potentially get really good value out of him. Like on ESPN, he's currently ranked 295th. And for a defenseman who could potentially get 35 to 40 points, that is obviously way too low. Yeah, for sure. You can look at him as a really great grab if you can get him as your third or fourth defenseman. The only caveat through all of this is that Buffalo did improve last season, but they improved from being a historically terrible team. So there's still going to be a lot of holes and his plus minus probably will suffer. But Elon, as you're saying, he could be the go-to guy there. The only other two defensemen that I think Buffalo would really want to carry the torch going forward might be Rasmus Ristolainen and Zach Bogosian. But Franson is the most experienced guy of the three, and he will definitely get his fair share of opportunity. Okay, and with that, let's move on to our second fancy hockey headline of the week. Another signing, and I mentioned it at the top of the show, Marek Zidlitschke just got signed by the New York Islanders as an unrestricted free agent. And this is an interesting signing to me because Zidlitschke's been around forever, and he's kind of been a solid 40-point fantasy defenseman forever. Like He's been a guy you could rely on as a third or fourth defenseman on your team that you know wouldn't suck, wouldn't blow away your matchups, but would put up the points that you'd expect from a third or fourth defenseman. Last season, he had a bit of a dip in New Jersey. He only had 23 points in 63 games, but then he got traded to the Detroit Red Wings, and he really ended the season strong, 11 points in 21 games, with eight of those 11 points being on the power play. So now he goes to the Islanders, and I don't know, maybe there's a spot for him on that top power play as well with John Tavares. I guess he'd have to bump a couple of guys, but I could see it happening. So Brian, what do you think this signing does for Zidlitschke's fantasy value. Well, that's the big question. Is he going to bump anybody out of their place on the depth chart? Because it's not like the aisles are exactly thin. And they had a guy named Lubomir Viznovsky last year, who was about the same age as Zidlitschke and was expected to take on about the same role. And he struggled a lot, although injuries were probably a concern. But we can't talk about the situation without at least referencing what happened with Viznovsky last season. But it's not at all a predictor of what's going to happen to Zidlitsky this year. And Elon, like you said, Zidlitsky has been, I think, like an underappreciated fantasy player for about the entirety of his career, even when he was back with Nashville at the beginning and time with Minnesota too. 
And sure, the last few years with New Jersey have not been terribly fruitful, but I don't necessarily blame him for that. Being a defenseman in New Jersey can only get you so far these days. Unless you're Damon Severson at the beginning of last season. Or like Eric Jelena from another three-month stretch a little while ago. But back to Zidlitsky, the ray of light was definitely his time in Detroit, where he logged legitimate power play time and was able, like you said, to put up 11 points in 21 games played during his short stint there. And that legit power play time was key, and that's likely going to continue to be the key for Zidlitsky throughout the rest of his career. If you look at last year, 8 of his 11 points in Detroit came with the man advantage, and 12 of his 19 points in New Jersey also came with the man advantage, which left him with only 9 even strength points over 84 games played, which are not great numbers that does not make you want to rush to draft anybody if they're relying so heavily on the power play. But he's a guy that's going to turn 39 in January, and I think that is going to be his bread and butter going forward. He might live and die in terms of production by the power play. So will he have the opportunity to do it? Let's get into the Isles depth chart a little bit. Last year, we saw Johnny Boychuk emerge as a force on the blue line, but maybe unbeknownst to some of our listeners or people who just weren't paying very close attention through the last four months, five months of the season, Nick Letty was definitely the guy by the end of the season who was getting the ice time and producing more efficiently with the ice time he was getting on the man advantage. So I still think he's at the top of the totem pole. So whether Boychuk or Zidlitsky are ahead of one another, I'm not totally sure at this point. But I think the most important thing to remember is that either one is probably beneath Letty to start with. Now, I think the greatest opportunity would be if the Isles moved away from that four forward configuration that they were using on the power play last year. That would allow a second defenseman to get up there with Letty. And I would think Franz Nielsen might be the guy who gets taken out of the top unit in that situation. Just speculating. And if that happens, then we'll have to take a look and see which defenseman gets to fill in on that spot. All that said, that second unit is not terrible either. The Isles are a pretty solid team in that they can probably ice two pretty good power play units. So Zidlitsky, as long as he gets reasonable power play time, I think he could provide you value as like a niche power play point scorer. And if you're in a league where you're carrying like maybe six defensemen, I think there's a reasonable case to be made for drafting him or at least 100% watchlisting him once your draft is done. Yeah, I guess for sure if he ends up on your free agent list at the start of the season, you need to be going to Dabur Hockey and checking out the line combinations and seeing if he's on the power play. Like you say, if he's on the power play, he's probably going to be valuable for you. If he's not, I wouldn't want to have him on my team. One more signing I wanted to talk about before we get into a couple of trades. Yuri Tlusti got signed by the New Jersey Devils recently. This was a guy who was about to leave the NHL, and you would think, ah, maybe this doesn't seem like such a relevant signing. But then again, he's going to New Jersey, which is bad because they hardly score, but maybe good because there's not many people ahead of him on the depth chart. Maybe he'll be able to get onto the top line in the top power play. I wouldn't be surprised. So, Brian, what are your thoughts on Yuri Tlusti? You know, Tlusti had that one really good year in Carolina during the lockout shortened season. And aside from that, He's never really impressed with his point totals, but where he has impressed is his goal scoring. He has been a pretty reliable goal scorer over the course of his career, and if we're just looking at the last three years to see where he rates amongst other players in the league in terms of goals per 60 minutes, he's actually doing pretty well at even strength, up there with names like Brandon Saad, Evander Kane, Jordan Eberle, Blake Wheeler, Marty St. Louis, which might come as a bit of a surprise to you. Now the thing is, is that this might be cause for optimism about him going through a change of scenery and ending up in a new place where he might get great opportunities, but that place is going to be New Jersey which just does not bode well for anybody. Last year, if you look at their leading scorer, it was Adam Henrique with a meager 43 points. That's all it took to lead the Devils in scoring last season. Although Mike Camilleri would have been on pace for more had he played a full 82 games, he would have been able to notch 51 points. So like, even if Toulouse does position himself amongst the top scorers on the Devils, that still might only put him at about like a half a point per game. And especially looking at his career history and seeing that he's never really even been a four. 40-point guy, all that mixed together makes me think that he's probably still on the margins of fantasy value. The one place where he could have value is in really deep leagues when you're really looking for power play time. I imagine that he will slot into the Devils' top six and into one of their top two power play units. No problem. 
Yeah, it's funny with what you're saying about the Devils scoring leaders last year. If Tlusi would have been on the Devils, his 31 points would have ranked him fourth on the team behind Henry Camilleri and Patrick Eliash. And I don't think there were many things done in the offseason to make us think they'll be able to start scoring more goals next season. So yeah, I'd be concerned about having Tlusi. But it's interesting to know that he has such a high goals per 60 minutes at even strength. I guess maybe part of that is due to him not having had much ice time. And of course, we talked about this on the Advanced Stats episode last week. Maybe if he had more ice time, he'll get more goals. And this is a sign of good things to come. We'll have to see. Yeah, I think that would be the optimistic take. If you look at the guys whose names I mentioned in comparison to him, he has played fewer minutes than most of them. But I think this will be a good year for us to find out. I don't think there will be any shortage of minutes to go around in New Jersey this year. Yeah, though he won't be playing with guys like Eric Stahl, who maybe helped him notch some of those goals. We'll see. Okay, Brian, let's move on to a couple of trades that happened recently. How about let's start with Chris Versteeg being traded from Chicago to the Carolina Hurricanes. He was traded along with a couple of guys like Joaquin Nordstrom and a pick and whatever. The main thing is Versteeg is on the Hurricanes. and This is interesting for Carolina and we should definitely talk about how Versteeg will fit in there. But also it's interesting for Chicago because I remember when we were talking about some of these guys like Artemi Panarin and Marco Dano when we were saying that it'll be interesting to see what their opportunity will be and if they'll be able to get ahead of guys like Versteeg. That's one less person for them to continue with, so I would think this is good for the fantasy values of some of these Chicago guys. Definitely curious to hear your thoughts on that, and also how you think this bodes for Versteeg himself. Yeah, so Chicago traded one of their, you know, likely top six or at least top nine guys away and didn't get anyone back that would fill the void left by Chris Versteeg. Not that it's a huge one, but there is now an even more gaping hole on the left side on that second line ready to be filled. It's not like maybe Versteeg will fill it for the start and then get overtaken. It is officially up for grabs, and it is between Marco Dano and Artemi Panarin, or, you know, they can rotate between one another. And then there's also Toivo Teravainen, who knows if he's guaranteed on the top line. I know we like to think he is, but I think maybe the three of them will all be shuffling around the top three lines. Good one. You know, like, that's the state of the left side in Chicago right now that I am just assuming. I'm just running with the fact that Toivo Teravainen is going to be first line left winger. So one of these guys, though, is going to have to bring something to that second line because, as we've mentioned before, the centerman is Artem Anisimov, who is not a huge offensive producer. And then, well, likely Patrick Kane starts the season at right wing. And I wonder if this will be any more difficult for him to be able to put up points. I feel like he is a guy who could generate his own offense, but he's going to have to do a little bit more on his own, at least to start the season, than he would have in seasons past. Although I do think Dano could eventually become a good partner and maybe Penner, and we just haven't seen him yet. So I feel like there's still a lot of speculation in the air, but instead of saying maybe one of these guys will get a shot, we know now that maybe they have a better chance at getting a shot. We just have to wait and see exactly where that shot comes. Yeah, so I guess... Guys like Dano and Panarin still are sort of lottery ticket type of picks, like guys that could turn out well and could also bust just like they were before this trade. But maybe now there's a slightly higher chance that they won't bust. Right. There's going to be a little bit more opportunity for them there less nipping at their heels from other players or so we think this is this is what's happening at this point of the season right now especially in a situation with so many new names floating around yeah before we talk about Versteeg, i just want to reiterate like i feel like i'm doing every week lately i'm really excited for the season to start because that's really our bread and butter on keeping carlson actually talking about the numbers and the things that are happening on a week-to-week basis here it's of course a lot of speculation and we prefer to prognosticate and not to speculate but Speculate we must right now because we should talk about Christopher Stieg now moving to Carolina. He had 34 points in 61 games last year. So, you know, barely fantasy relevant. There were stretches where he was adding value to people's teams. I'd assume he makes the top six now in Carolina. Do you think he could do better than he did in Chicago? He has, I guess, worse line mates, but maybe he's higher in the depth chart. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't expect a huge boost in value moving to Carolina for Christopher Stieg. He still has, well, a linemate who has really good potential in Jeff Skinner, and he's going to be centered by Jordan Stahl if he does make that second line. So you're assuming the first line would be like Eric Stahl, Elias Lindholm, and like a Victor Rask? Yeah, and like we should also keep in mind that Nathan Gerby is in the mix there too. So I don't even know that Versteeg is a top six guy. He's probably a top nine guy for sure, but I don't think his fantasy outlook gets any better with a move to Carolina than it was when he was a member of the Blackhawks. 
Yeah, I agree. I don't think I'm going to be drafting Versteeg. I think this news is more interesting in terms of guys like Dano and Panarin as opposed to Versteeg himself. The other trade that happened recently, I don't know if this is worth anything, but I'll throw it out there, Brian. Michael Grabner got traded from the Islanders to the Leafs. I'm not sure how much there is to say about him. This is a guy who's been injured a lot. He had one really good year in 2010-2011 with the Islanders where he had 52 points in 76 games. Aside from that, he's never broken 32 points. And in the last three seasons, he hasn't even been able to play more than 64 games in a year. But he goes to the Leafs where we know they are very shallow. This is a lot like some of the other players we've already been talking about. Do we assume that Grabner is going to get a top six role and potentially time on the power play? Yeah, I think so. Or at least he gets a trial run there. The obligatory things to say about Michael Grabner whenever we talk about him are that A, he's fast, and B, he can score goals. But the thing with him is that over the course of his career, he's never played more than 15 minutes a game, on average, that is. And over the last two years, he's barely averaged 13 minutes of ice time a night. And that's in all situations. I'm not just talking about even strength ice time. So what gives? Because Grabner's possession numbers are actually all right, which suggests to me that this isn't like he's a defensive liability and just can't be trusted on the ice. Maybe he's just been the odd one out in Long Island for the entirety of his time there. And if you look at who's come up in the ranks over the last few years, that theory does make a bit of sense. He never really seemed to factor into their big future plans. He seemed to be more like a placeholder until the rest of their system matured and was able to take his place. And that's what's happened. In Toronto, though, he goes back to being maybe that placeholder and maybe in a bit of a better situation. And look at Grabner as a guy who's been able to make the most of the limited ice time that he has seen in his career. He did score 34 goals in his first full NHL season, and then he followed that up with two years of scoring 20 goals or more, or at least one of them he was on pace to do it, but it was a shortened season. And then if you look at his rate stats, over the last three years, he's right up there in goals per 60 minutes with some big names, but sort of like Tolusti, he doesn't have the credibility of having played the same amount of minutes as the others around him on that list have. And in fact, the gap between his minutes and Tolusti's is even wider, like Tolusti has played more minutes than Grabner over that stretch. So if we had concerns about a small sample size for Tolusti, those concerns would be even more salient when we talk about Grabner. And, you know, there's no guarantee that with those extra two or three minutes of ice time a game that Grabner can actually do anything with them. That's something that we'll have to watch for this year. Elon, the other thing to think about is that injuries have been a factor in the past. As you mentioned, he's missed over 70 games in the last two seasons. And I think he probably falls as like a watch list guy coming out of most drafts. He could be a good depth forward on your roster, especially if he is able to crack the top six in Toronto. And like I said, I think he's going to get a decent shot to do just that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty low on this guy. I brought it up because there's not much fantasy news to talk about right now. Considering that we said just a few episodes ago that James Van Riemsdyk probably only has upside for like 55 points on the Leafs next season, I don't think Grabner is going to come anywhere near that. Maybe like 30 points if things go well. Not too interested. You know, we were saying that when the Leafs traded Kessel, but they have like added a pretty substantial number of names on tryouts or short-term contracts like Sean Mathias, P.A. Parento. Mark Arcobello, I guess. Yeah, Grabner is one of those names too. So I feel like they have a bunch of like middle six guys, like second and third line guys who, given the opportunity, they might be able to produce like top six guys. Okay, next on the list of things I wanted to talk about today, this isn't exactly fantasy news in terms of a transaction that happened, but could we just quickly talk about Johan Franzen? Because this is a guy who I think a lot of people have completely forgotten about. He missed most of last season with a concussion, only played 33 games, got 22 points in those games, which isn't so bad, but maybe not even that great. But before that, this was a really valuable guy in fantasy. Like in 2013-14, he had 41 points in 54 games, 31 points in 41 the year before, 56 and 77 the year before that. I think you're getting the trend here where he's been like around a 60-point player if he were to play all 82 games, but he's also never played all 82 games. Like he's been injury-prone for a long time, and this was a really serious one last year. News coming out of Detroit is that he's going to be ready to start playing at the start of the season. So I'm curious to get your thoughts, Brian, on how you think he'll do, and also if it's even worth drafting him because there's such a big injury risk. Yeah, that's the huge red flag here. He's missed so much time, about 80 games over the last two years alone. And with that concussion from last year, that happened in January, and he didn't come back. So we're looking at like 10 months without game action by the time he sees his next NHL shift. 
But like you said, when he's healthy, his scoring has been healthy too. He was on pace for 60 points two years ago and 55 points last year, which is about on pace with what we're used to from his career. And, you know, he'd almost surely slot in on line one or line two with power play time, which in a vacuum would make him pretty tempting. But we're not in a vacuum. He's got a ton of rest to shake off. And that would go for any NHL player that I'd be worried about missing so much time. But Franzen is just a few months away from his 36th birthday. And we also know that with every concussion, a player becomes more vulnerable to having it happen to them again. So I'd be really concerned about drafting him ahead of any other even like 50 point producers. I don't get the sense that he's going to be able to play a full season healthy. That is total speculation. I have no idea how things are going to go for him, but I wouldn't want to get burned by drafting him, then having him get injured, and then having a weaker pool of players to replace him with. I'd rather, you know, get the sure thing right away, expect that he falls really late in the draft to maybe like a sleeper pick or put him on my watch list and then go from there. Yeah, this is my take on Johan Franzen in terms of drafting strategy. He's currently ranked on ESPN at 432, so basically not going to get drafted in the majority of leagues. So what I think is I would take him with my last pick, because your last pick is basically the equivalent of picking up a free agent after the draft. And then if we think he has the potential to be good when he plays, you've got him. And if he gets injured, throw him on your IR, you pick up someone else. You haven't lost anything. I agree with you that I wouldn't want to take him earlier in the draft just because of all the risk. But I don't think I'm going to leave him undrafted. Obviously, we'll have to see what the draft dynamics are and how many people are left. And of course, I'm giving away my strategy to my opponents in the Cuckupful, the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. So I might be hurting myself, but I think he's the kind of guy that I'd want to have on my roster if he's playing. But that if is obviously the big red flag, like you say. Okay, and before we cut to the interview with Jeff Good about auction draft strategies, Brian, I just want to throw out to you a number of players whose names have been coming out in the news as getting tryouts with different teams. I'm just going to tell you all of them, and then I'm just curious to know if you think any of these are going to be somewhat worthy of looking at come draft time. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, Ray Emery's trying out with Tampa Bay, Brad Boys in Toronto, Martin Havlat in Florida, Derek Roy in Washington, Thomas Fleischmann in Montreal, Lubavor Viznovsky, who we mentioned earlier, he's going to be trying out in Chicago, and Lee Stempniak has a tryout on the New Jersey Devils. Are any of these guys on your radar as training camp begins? Going through them really quickly, Ray Emery, not on my radar. We know once Vasilevsky comes back, Ray Emery will go off wherever he's going to go because he's just not really an NHL goalie, hasn't been a number one for a long time now, and I wouldn't trust him on my fantasy team, even if he was the entrenched number two in Tampa. Brad Boys, I would be maybe taking a flyer on. He's the sort of guy that seems to do really well when he starts with a new team, and I think he's got more to give. In fact, of the people on this list, he has one of the better track records. His last good season was in the lockout year where he had 35 points in 48 games with the Islanders. For the last couple of years with the Panthers, he's had 36 and 38 points respectively. Maybe in a starring role with the Leafs, he'll have a chance. But the Leafs actually have another PTO that you didn't mention, and that's Curtis Glencross, who I think is another name that we can throw into the mix that we just mentioned a couple minutes ago as somebody who could make a difference in terms of scoring He's not going to light the world on fire, especially not with a ton of help on that Leafs roster, but he is still someone to keep an eye out as somebody on a tryout who might stick with their team. And quickly, just to round out your list, Havlat in Florida, I would love to see him succeed, but I think his body just isn't up for the challenge at this point in his career. Derek Roy in Washington would be nothing more than a depth option if he couldn't hack it on last year's Edmonton Oilers. I don't expect he's going to be able to on this year's Washington Capitals. Viznovsky in Chicago. My curiosity is peaked, but I think they're just bringing him in, potentially, because they just have a bunch of young guys, you know, rounding out their bottom four, and they're looking for maybe a veteran presence. But we were disappointed enough with him last year to not really want to let him back onto our draft lists this year. Thomas Fleischman in Montreal. We love Thomas Fleischman on the show. When he does disappear from the score sheet, it seems to be rather mysterious and we can't ever really figure out why exactly it's happened. It's interesting that they would give a contract to Semin, but Fleischman would be the one on a tryout. I'm curious to see how that works out, although I'm not optimistic that he does make the roster out of training camp. And Lee Stampniak for the Devils, I don't see why he would not stick. 
with the Devils team that's desperately looking for plays. And Lee Stepniak has been a serviceable NHLer for the, his entire career. And this is a team that's looking for a serviceable NHLer. At least I assume they are. But will he give you much fantasy value? I don't really think so. Okay, that's a little informal lightning round for our episode. A lot of interesting names. Probably none of them will pan out to be anything worth fantasy relevance and mention on our show again, but we'll see. Thomas Fleischman, of course, interests me just because he did have like 60 points just a few seasons ago. He goes to Montreal. There's been a lot of news coming out of Montreal, at least on Rotowire, about how they're going to be trying different line combinations. I've been reading that Alex Galchenyuk might go to the top line or Lars Eller might switch to the wing. So I don't know exactly where Fleischman would fit in, but I'll be interested to see if he makes the team, if he can make it to the top six. Probably not. I still can't believe that Semin's going to be there, but I guess we'll see. We've been debating on the Facebook group, as we always seem to do, whether Semin will be good or not. I can't wait for his first four-goal game of the season. Yeah, you're going to wait a long time. I can't wait until he gets bumped to the fourth line, and I'll be proven correct. Either way, the number four seems very resonant in both our projections for his season this year. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Okay. All right, so we've got this awesome interview that I'm really excited to play. I guess once we play that interview, this will again challenge to be one of the longest episodes of Keeping Carlson. I don't know why this preseason series is churning out all these long episodes. I wonder how this bodes for the actual regular season. But before I queue up that interview, I just want to take a quick second to thank the patrons of Keeping Carlson. Of course, we appreciate all of our listeners, and just listening to the show means a lot to us. And of course, if you give us a five-star review on iTunes, that's an even better thing you could do if you want to help support the show. But there are some people who are just such great supporters of the show that they've decided to donate $5 of their hard-earned money every month to the show. And in exchange, we offer some pretty fun rewards. We have our patron-only Facebook group, which is really active lately. It's a lot of fun. Everyone's asking about different trade offers and keeper decisions and drafting strategies. Brian and I are definitely on there multiple times every day answering people's questions, as are the other patrons. Like, There's a lot of smart people in there having really interesting discussions and bringing up really interesting thoughts and posting links. It's a great place. Also, we have our monthly patron cast and we actually have this month's coming up on thursday so if you're a patron make sure that you tune in to the patron cast you could call in ask questions we all chat we do it on spreecast it's a lot of fun we also have the keeping carlson ultimate patron fantasy league the sign up deadline has passed but if you sign up to be a new patron you can still sign up to be on the waiting list if we can fill up another pool before draft time we'll for sure do it because it's just going to be the type of league where we have a bunch of pools and at the end of the year we'll decide how everyone ranks into their different rungs on the ladder for the following season and elon i think i should mention because we are sort of creeping up on one of our milestone goals on our patreon page which is to add a second patron cast where you can pepper us with any questions you want live right now we do it once a month like you mentioned we're ready and willing to do it twice a month if we've got the support for it we're about three quarters of our way to adding that second patron cast so if one patron cast isn't enough for you and you're thinking well you know i'd join if they had two a month well you can help us get to two a month by joining and becoming a patron if you're listening out there if you enjoy the show we would really appreciate your support so yeah once again thank you to austin billy joseph and nick for signing up recently to become patrons of the show if you're interested in any of this that we've been blathering about for the past couple of minutes go to keepingcarlson.com patron for all the information you need Okay, Brian, it is time. I think you're really going to like this interview. I'll just point out really quickly, there's a like 10 second stretch where Jeff had some internet issues and his call gets a little robot Bear with it. It's worth it. Okay, let's queue up that auction draft talk. Okay, I'm here with Jeff Good, a very valued patron of Keeping Carlson, one of the most active people on the Facebook group, and also the host of Not Another Magic Podcast. And today, Jeff is going to talk to us all about auction drafts because unfortunately, Brian and I We don't really know that much about auction drafts. We've each competed in, so far, one each. I did a mock, he did a real one. Jeff, you've done, like, a ton of auction drafts, so I think people really want to hear what you have to say. So, yeah, why don't you just tell everyone your qualifications as an auction draft expert? I've been doing fantasy sports of various kinds since the early 2000s, like 03, 04. Uh, I would do, like, a baseball auction uh, almost every year. Particularly, that's how I like to do head-to-head baseball. And I also, for a while, ran a football keeper league that was auction-based. So basically, you've participated in lots of auction drafts in lots of different sports. And how about for hockey specifically? Hockey, I've just done the one the one mock. I actually haven't been doing fantasy hockey very long. Last year was actually my first year doing fantasy hockey at all. And that was like a Yahoo public league 
where most of the owners were inactive by December. Oh, that's not fun. You're definitely going to have more fun in the Keeping Carlson League this year. Yeah, yeah. But I guess the thing is with auction drafts, it must be the case that for any sport, it's kind of the same strategies going in in terms of how do you prepare and how do you do your draft. So I know when I was even preparing for the mock draft, I was trying to find articles of how to prepare and like strategies and it was all just other sports, but it was still very useful. So I'm really curious to see uh, what you can teach us today. So maybe we could just start by talking about preparing for your auction draft. So I know for a snake draft, we did a whole episode last year where Brian and I talked about how you kind of want to make tiers and you have to sort of keep track of who's gone so you could try to determine who you should pick next and you sort of build your team. With an auction draft, it's a whole other thing because people are going to be bidding. Oh, we haven't even described how an auction draft works. Maybe do you want to do that first? All right. So the most basic thing is like you, you still have an order, but that order is just the order that you nominate players and you can start them at honestly any value. Uh, by default, it'll just nominate them at a dollar, which in an automated program is fine. If you're if you find yourself at a live draft table, you don't want to go nominating Alex Ovechkin for a dollar. It's just gonna be time consuming. But in the ESPN app, it bids up you know automatically very quickly, so that's not really an issue. Yeah, in our draft that we did, the mock draft that we did last week, and by the way, this mock draft that we're referring to, we did a mock draft with the patrons of Keeping Carlson. We just kind of asked on the Facebook group who wants to do a mock draft. We got 12 people, and there it was. And yeah, Ovechkin was nominated first, and he was probably nominated for a dollar. I don't even know. I think it happened automatically. But then all of a sudden, just it was right away up past $40. And we'll talk about sort of these money values. Just for the context, our auction draft, we each had a total of $260 to spend, and we were filling 18-man rosters. So yeah, after players nominated, they get bid up and, you know, eventually uh, in, in the ESPN app, there's a little handy like going once, going twice, sold sounds. So you know when a player, when it's getting too down to the wire. Yeah. And then, you know, just like a regular auction, someone gets taken and now it's up to the next person. So there is an order, like you said, and we all take turns nominating people, but the nomination doesn't really matter because then we all just bid. Maybe there will be some strategy towards who you want to nominate when it's your turn to nominate. And we'll get to that. The big difference is that you have an opportunity to get every player. Whereas if you're in a snake draft, your draft position is going to kind of lock you in and lock you out of certain players. You know, like if you're at the end of the first round, you're not going to get guys in the, you know, in the top five or six generally, but you're probably also not going to get guys that are around like the 20 to 25 range either because you're so far from them uh, pick wise. Yeah. So I think we talked about this when we were sort of talking about how to design your perfect league. And what Brian and I sort of came down to was an auction draft seems like the most fair, like everyone has the same opportunity to get every player, whether or not it's more fun, or more strategic or some other metric you may want to use. That's a whole other question. I guess we'll talk about this today. But I assume you're a fan of auction drafts. I see you signed up for the auction draft in the Keeping Carlson League. Yeah, I definitely like it. It's more intense, for sure. Uh, And they take longer. Uh, definitely probably about 50% longer like than a snake draft for the same team and players being drafted. It definitely it, it lets you do a lot more. It gives you more flexibility in how you build your team. Yeah, and we'll talk about some of the different auction draft strategies. So let's get into it. Why don't we start with like I was saying before, before I remember that we hadn't even described what an auction draft is. <laughs> Hopefully now people know what we're talking about. How do you go about preparing for an auction draft? You know a draft is coming in a week. You know the league rules, like what the categories are. You know how many players you're going to need to draft for each position. When you sit down and you're like, I'm going to start preparing for my draft, what do you do? Well, the first thing you want is some baseline set of of auction values. ESPN comes with these. They are adjusted to sort of the league and player pool size. They don't seem to be adjusted for specific categories. So I would keep that in mind when looking at those values. Also, I think their defenseman values are just a bit low, but that's that's ESPN. Uh, there's other sites like Dauber Hockey where you can uh, you know pay for other projections and you know calculators and stuff like that. Yeah, I guess if you're a savvy player, you just take the baseline projections or more like the baseline auction values from ESPN, and then it's up to you to decide what your, I guess, maximum value is for each player. Like, is that what you tend to do, is just kind of come up with what's the most you'd be willing to spend on every player? Yeah, and that's called bid limits, and that's just, it's the most you'll pay for a guy. And some of those are going to be higher than the default, some are going to be lower, um, and that's usually where you'll find the players that that you want to target. And as an auction drafter, do you find that you stick with your bid limits or do you sometimes change them as the auction draft is going on? Because I'd imagine if there's a player that you really want, like let's say a good goalie and you realize all the other goalies are taken, this is the last one, maybe you'd have to pay more than you were initially expecting to. Yeah, you do have to remain flexible in an auction. Certain trends will change the dynamics of the draft and 
force you to overpay for guys. But usually when that happens, it also means you'll get to underpay for some other guys. So yeah, once you've got sort of your player values and sort of have an idea of, of what those are going to look like, uh, you want to look at how you're going to spend your budget. And you want to s- split that up at least between sort of how much you want to spend on goalies versus forwards. Uh, you can get split it down to like goalies, defensemen's forwards. You can even split it, split it down into each position or even like, you know, assign a certain amount of dollars you want to spend, you know, on even on each roster spot. Something I, I wanted to do for the mock draft that didn't really work out just because there was some weird stuff going on is I wanted to try in a mock, not in a real draft, but I wanted to try spending half my budget on goalies and defensemen just to see what that would leave me with uh, for an offense. Oh, that's interesting. Probably would have been ugly, but uh, I was curious. Uh, it didn't really work out because, like, Carey Price went for over $45, and so did Eric Carlson. And it gets weird to spend half your budget on on those positions if you don't get one of the, you know those two guys. Yeah, to me, it just seems, like, really hard to come up with what your strategy is going to be. Because, like you say, you could come in thinking, like, I'm going to get Eric Carlson. I'm going to get, you know, the top goalies and defensemen. But then, like you say, if these guys are going for higher than you think is fair... Like, what do you do? You just have to completely adapt and change your whole strategy as opposed to like a snake draft where, you know, things go in a more standard way. You can sort of plan a little bit. Yeah, I guess it's it's mostly different in that there's less that you can plan in a snake draft. So in a snake draft, it's very fluid and you're really just looking at like, you know, the next five to 10 players at the top of your list for who you're going to draft. And you just take, you know, whoever of them you think is the best. But with uh, with an auction, you really have to be paying attention on on every player bid. Okay, so once you have these values for everyone, and now you said that you've split up your roster into sort of your budget for the different positions, is there anything else that you can do before the draft? Because next we're going to talk about what to actually do with all this information that you've compiled in the draft. Is there anything else before the draft that you may want to consider doing to prepare? Yeah, the other thing when spending your when planning how to spend your money is how you're going to spread it out over the draft. Uh, whether you want to get a handful of high-end players and a lot of cheap players, which is often called like stars and scrubs uh, or studs and duds. There's there's a bunch of terms for it, but kind of the same thing where you spend almost all your money on just some elite guys and then just a bunch of, you know, one to five dollar guys. You can also alternately say, well, well I'm not going to spend on like any of those elite guys, but I'm going to get just like I'm just going to fill my roster with like 20 to 30 dollar guys and just have a really nice, well-balanced roster with a lot of depth. Yeah, so I guess the equivalent would be in a snake draft, getting like three picks in the first round and then not picking again until like the 10th round versus just getting one pick in every round. Or maybe even not getting a pick in the first couple of rounds, but then having like three or four picks in the third and fourth rounds. Yeah. Well, there was definitely some examples of that when we did our mock draft. Like for studs and duds, I think the best example was Team Manan. This guy, he had so many $1 players and so many stars. Like, let me just run down his roster in terms of the most expensive to least. He had Claude Giroux at $48, P.K. Subban at $41, Brent Burns, $33, Max Pacioretty, $33, Bobrovsky, $32, Rask, $33, Taylor Hall, $28. So right there, I've just named seven players that are all guys who could theoretically be drafted in the first three rounds, say, of a snake draft. Keep in mind, this was a 12-person draft, and there's going to be 18 players overall per team. But then the rest of his roster, after he had spent all that money, he was left with only basically a dollar per player. And let's look at the players he ended up with. Alex Edler, Toivo Teravainen, Marion Gaborik. He actually got him for $2. His only $2 guy of the remaining list. Zuccarello, Granlund, Ribeiro, Myers, Savard, Lettera, Molson, and Dano. So definitely a big drop off right there. And that's like a lot of potentially free agent fodder players. Yeah. And I'll say in general, that kind of strategy works better in the shallower the league is and sort of the more freedom you have with your pickups, you know, ads and drops and, you know, free agent acquisitions. Oh, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. If you know there's going to be lots of good free agents and you're free to pick them up often, then you might as well just get the high end guys and assume you'll be able to pick up hot players whenever you need them. Yeah, like if you know there's going to be guys, you know, going out, you know, a lot of guys going undrafted that, you know, could pop up into being top 100 players, definitely go for that. I feel like the the 14 team league is sort of right on the edge where I think you can do it, but it's going to be harder. And with free agent auction budget and the limit acquisition limits is going to be harder to cycle players in and out. Well, I almost feel like from what you're saying, 
when you're deciding between doing studs and duds or more of a balanced draft, you're basically deciding how much work you're going to do during the regular season. Because if you draft a balanced team, then you're probably not going to need to make many moves. You maybe have one or two players at the bottom of your roster that you're cycling in and out. But if you have, you know, like Team Anan here, if you've got guys like David Savard and, you know, Marco Dano and Alex Eller, like guys who maybe will be, like all these guys could end up being good. Like none of these were like horrible picks, but these are guys, the types of guys that you tend to see in free agency and you might want to cycle. Now, one thing about sort of those like dollar players is your bench guys are almost always going to be dollar guys. You don't really want to spend a lot of money on players who are not going to be active most of the time. So that like those four bench slots, you can basically figure you're going to spend $5 on them. There's going to be one dollar guy that you like and you're going to bid two on him. So when figuring out how you're going to divvy your budget, like those last four or five guys are going to be dollar guys. Oh, so that seems like a good point when you're sort of figuring out beforehand how much you're going to spend on each position, kind of come up with this idea that you're probably going to want to save three or four dollars just for the last four guys. That means more money that you have to spend on the top guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So now we've got our max bid approximations for each player. We've got a general idea of how much we want to spend on each roster position. We've decided on our strategy if we're going to do studs and duds or a more depth approach. Anything else before we actually get into the draft? Do we want to go over an example of a more balanced team? Sure. Well, how about I could give you a couple examples. I'll give you an example of, I think, a well-done balanced team. One of the teams in our draft was called Song of Icing and Fire, and he actually did a really great job because I see a few really high-end players and then hardly any $1 players. He had Evgeny Malkin at $43 and Steven Stamkos at 42 So he has a really strong down-the-middle setup. Like, his centers are great. Then he picked up a number of players in the $20 range. Well, actually, a couple players in the $20 range. Evander Kane, he got Jonathan Quick in nets. Then I guess he went a little bit lower for his other goalies. He picked up Jake Allen for just $11. And then he has a lot of guys who are sort of in that $10, $15 range. Where he has like guys like Justin Falk and Nick Foligno, Matt Duchesne, who could be a good sleeper. Tough to think of him as a sleeper, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, after last season, you know, 55 points isn't very good, but we'd hope he'll bounce back. But yeah, he ended up only with one $1 guy, Jason Zucker, and he got Antti Niemi for $2 right at the end. And, you know, if Lettinen falters like he did last year, then that could end up being a steal also. So just a nice, well-balanced team. He's solid on D. Like I said, he has Ekblad, and he also has Justin Falk and Trevor Daly and Zdeno Chara. So. Yeah, Chara was one of my uh, sort of cheap defensemen that I liked in the uh, Mock Snake draft, uh, where I waited on defensemen really a long time. And then I could give you an example of a balanced team that was done poorly, which is my team, because I really had no idea what I was doing. I didn't get any of the really top tier guys. Somehow I just like was too afraid to bid on all of them. And I could get into why a little bit, because I think my pre-draft prep wasn't that great. But like the top guy I got was Ryan Johansson. I spent 36 and I had Rick Nash where I spent 31. Then I have a whole bunch of guys in the 20s and teens, but they're not even that great. Like I spent $12 on Jake Muzzin for some reason. And I think that had to do with me just not being patient. Maybe we could transition now into like during the draft. Yeah, you put him out pretty early when there were a bunch of defensemen that were going for a lot more money than that. Yes. For some reason, I thought Jake Muzzin is good. And, you know, this was around the time when all the stars were being nominated. And so guys were going for like 30, 40, even Ovechkin went for $50. So Mm -hmm. I was thinking, oh, $12, that's not very much. And I think Jake Muzzin could get like 40 points. But then little did I know if I would have waited like two hours near the end of the draft, a guy like Mike Green went for $6. And I would rather have Mike Green than Jake Muzzin for next season. I also do want to, since I participated in this, talk a bit about my team in that that I ended up with where where I did have to kind of change tax from what I was planning going in. So what I ended up doing was I saw that uh, the players at the top of the draft were going for what I considered insane prices. Uh, so I bypassed that very top tier, but then I started buying pretty hard at the next tier of like the $25 to $30 players. So my team ended up being uh, Joe Pavelski for 29 Zach Parisi for 26 Voracek for 33, Backstrom for 27, Eberly for 21, Giordano for 26, Johnny Gaudreau for 24, uh, Zetterberg for 21, and Logan Couture for 32. Like, that was the bulk of the money I spent. And that's pretty amazing. These are all the types of guys that would go, and I'd say the at the top, like the second round, you know, a guy like Jacob Voracek or maybe Pavelski or Parise could be like second round guys, even Backstrom. These are all good players, actually. And then, you know, maybe up to you're talking about like fourth round guys. And, and this is nine players that I'd say all would be drafted in the first four rounds. So yeah, you miss the top 
round, but then you got a whole bunch of other guys, and then I guess you filled out at the end with some lower guys, but I think you got some good steals even at the bottom, except for maybe Dominic Cash at good a dollar. I think you overspent <laughs> there. <laughs> oh, come on. I got a Hall of Famer on my roster. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, before warned, there are some uh, inactive players, uh, retired players, long retired players in the ESPN pool, but generally if they don't have a projection, it's pretty safe to assume that there you can exclude them yeah you don't want to bid on a guy who doesn't even have a projection (laughs) i see by the way you got a real steal alex galchenyuk for one dollar how'd you pull Mm -hmm. that off but that was a really late pick in the draft and probably i would have wanted him but i probably only had like one or two dollars left and i knew i would have been outbid yeah that that's because of the auction dynamics and we should we should now get into those auction dynamics of what happens when you're in the auction right yes let's do it so i think the thing that makes sense to talk about first is how people are bidding in the draft. Uh, we'll get to who you bid a bit later. So the mock auction we did, people were bidding very aggressively, like extremely aggressively, which means that the earlier players coming out were getting bid up well beyond both the values I had for them and like the default values for them by like really astronomical amounts. Yeah, and again, to give context, it was a $260 budget, and the first guy on the board, Alex Ovechkin, went for $50. That's like a fifth of your money for an 18-man roster was gone right there for whoever won. Right, and Alex Ovechkin is superhuman. I would expect him to go for at least that much, you know, in in just about any auction. The weird thing was that there were eight players that went for $48 or more, and that really shouldn't be the case in most drafts. Crosby, Tavares, Price... Uh, Sagan, Eric Carlson, Jamie Benn. Those guys were were all like at least 48. There were a bunch of other guys who went in the 40s. Like we mentioned, Malkin and Stamkos were in the low 40s. Kessel was 43. Even Connor McDavid went for $40, even though we said that we were mocking for not a keeper league and just a one-year league. Yeah, disregard that. (laughs) So when you see all these high prices, how do you need to adjust your strategy? I guess what you you did is you went for the next tier. Right, that's what I did. I think I almost did that correctly. (laughs) I actually, I didn't save enough money to get some of the cheaper guys later. But basically what that means is there's a limited amount of money to be spent. So if guys at the top are getting more money than you'd expect, the guys at the end are going to go way cheaper. Uh, And that's how we ended up with like, you know, $1 Galchenyuk, you know, $6 Patrick Hornquist. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, you know, $2 Placanitz. So I guess this goes to the next big sort of in-draft strategy that you need to try to employ, which is being patient. And we've kind of talked about how I blew that before. But yeah, it seems like really if you're going to prepare, and actually maybe this is something also that we should have brought up in the pre-draft strategy, you need to have an idea of who are the players that are good. You know, like you should have your list of guys maybe broken into tiers so that you won't be surprised when you've run out of money and then Alex Galchenyuk comes up and you're like, oh, I could have had Alex Galchenyuk for a dollar, but I spent six dollars on jack johnson maybe that wasn't the right decision for me yeah no you can't know for certain that that's going to happen but you will know pretty quickly into the draft like really within the first 20 players whether people are bidding aggressively or conservatively mock auctions and people who are new to auctions will tend to bid aggressively which i think is just kind of a kid in a candy store effect where it's like i can get all these players i've got all the options in the world but Every player you buy limits what you can buy later. So maybe then another strategy question I want to ask you is, let's say I have a guy that's not like one of the top guys who's obviously everyone's thinking about. But let's say I have a guy who I just have a good feeling is going to be like amazing next season. Like, so let me give you an example. Say Anje Kopitar, who, by the way, on the last episode, Brian and I were both pronouncing Anj Kopitar for some <laughs> reason. But okay, say Anze Kopitar, Anje Kopitar, I think he's going to get like 70 points. I think he's going to be overlooked by a lot of people. Should I nominate him when it's my turn to nominate and try to grab him? Or should I kind of wait for him to come up in a long time? Like, what's a better strategy if I want to get him for as cheap as possible? Yeah, so if it's an aggressive draft, like, you know, the mock auction we did, you probably want to wait and let him come out when people have spent their money and you're going to have fewer people competing to bid on him. You know, and other people sort of spend themselves out of his price range. On the other hand, if you're in a draft where people are spending more conservatively and, you know, those players up at the top are going maybe within a couple dollars of their projections, like people always spend a little more at the top. But, you know, if you get past those top dozen or so players and people are being pretty tight about not going that extra dollar for guys or that extra five to ten dollars for guys, that's when you might want to get the guy you want out there before there's any kind of a rush to spend money. 
Oh, that's so interesting. So it's kind of, you really have to have a sense of what's going on in your draft. If people are saving money, you're right, at some point they're going to have to spend their money. So once maybe one person sees that, oh, this guy's starting to spend money, maybe I should also. And then all of a sudden, guys will start going for more expensive. It almost seems like the draft is going to go in waves in that way. Yeah, and that's how you get something. We were talking about tiering earlier, and tiering can get a little weird in an auction. Because once you get towards the end of a tier, rather than being picking the last guy in a tier last, and essentially paying the least for that guy, often that's when three or four owners will go, oh crap, I need that last available starting goalie or that last elite defenseman or that last elite player at whatever position in that tier. And you'll suddenly get like four or five owners bidding on the same guy and they'll actually go for more money than the guy at the top of that tier. So for example, this happened with goalies in our mock draft. So Price went for 45, Holtby went for 38, uh, Lungfist went for 37, Rennie went for 35. But then there was a whole chunk of guys that went for right around $30. Semyon Varlamov went for 30. Devin Dubnik went for 30. Uh, Jonathan Quick went for 29. Corey Schneider went for 26. Three went right in a row. Bobrovsky for 32. Flurry for 32, Rask for 33. And I think if you look at the tiers, like that's kind of going in the order of their projected values, but then their prices were creeping up. So you end up paying, you know, a few dollars more for a guy who is probably not as good. Yeah, that's interesting. It even happened a little bit later. Bishop went for 31. And I don't know who's going to pay 31 for Bishop when you can pay 30 for Varley or Dubnik. Yeah, especially in our league, which counts saves. Yeah, that was actually maybe one of my good things I did in the draft is I was able to get Corey Schneider pretty early in that goalie run for $26. And that's before all those other goalies went for like 33. I don't know if that was actually good. I guess we'll see how the season goes. Schneider might not get that many wins. Yeah, but still, even if you're just looking at, you know, projected value, that's probably the best dollar to projected value of that group. Yeah, so it is very interesting because you're right in a snake draft, you know, obviously, as you get near the bottom of the tier, that's like the worst guy. But then in an auction draft, it's almost like the worst guy is going to go for more money just because people start realizing that he's scarce. So that means in terms of strategy going into it, it sounds like you're saying you want to go for guys near the top of a tier and nail your guy down early. Yeah, and even if not the top, the middle of a tier is huge. When something like this is happening, the middle of the tier is going to be softest. Oh, so that's a very interesting tip. So conservative drafts in general, I was starting to talk about that. They will go where, you know, players are going pretty close to the value. They're much, much different in the end game, though. The later you get in the draft, people start looking at the amount of money they have left to spend and start wondering where they're going to be able to actually spend it. And then you end up with a lot of players or a lot of owners with a lot of money and not the most great guys to spend it on. When that happens... You know, guys that you had pegged at, like, a lot. Of, it's typically these guys in, like, the 10 to $15 range that get affected by this stuff most, who are kind of average players mostly, but in an aggressive draft, they're going to go under that. They, you know, they might go, like, down around $5 or something. In a draft like this, they can get pumped up to, like, $20 because they're just the last player that's any good available, you know, the last handful of guys that you really want to be starting. Right. So again, it really means that you need to, you have to be really savvy to be in an auction draft because you could do all your prep, but then depending how the draft is going, you might have to completely change your strategy. Yeah. And it's a lot of it is knowing when you, when to overpay, you know, cause you, you always want to hunt for bargains. Like you want to get value on guys, but you're gonna pay more somewhere. Like you're, you're basically never going to have a draft where every player goes for within two or $3 of, you know, so what everyone expects. Just because everyone has different strategies and different approaches and a lot of times different values going into it. So that's, I guess, why you were saying before the draft, you want to prepare how much you're planning on spending in the different places, so you know, where you can afford to spend a little more. Because I was like, oh, I was planning on spending $75 on goalies overall, and I've only spent 30 so far. So it's OK to spend a little bit more to get Marc-Andre Fleury or whoever. Yep. OK, another thing that I was really struggling with in our mock auction draft is how much do you want to go for these value picks versus getting the players you really want? Like, let's say there's a guy like Henrik Sedin who say he's projected to be bid for $20 or something, let's say. And then you see that you could maybe get him for 15 and you think, oh, that's a great value. But what if you didn't really want Henrik Sedin in the first place? You had other centers that you were targeting that you think are going to do better than him. Is it worth it to go for players and get the bargain, even if it's not the player you really wanted in your roster? I think it is generally worth it to go for values when you can. 
it is something where how much you've spent at that point in the draft is going to determine if you're able to jump on those bargains. Uh, like if you spent a lot of money early, you might not be able to buy, you know, the, the value guy who goes for 15 when they should be worth 20 or the guy who goes for 11 who should have been worth 20. Like an example of this actually did happen to me in our mock draft. Now that I'm looking at the results, I remember I had bought Corey Schneider for $26 and then we were at the point in the draft where I wanted to grab my second goalie and I had Roberto Luongo in my sights. I was thinking, that's the goalie I think I'm going to be able to get for a decent price. A bunch of other goalies from who I thought were in his tier were taken. But then Corey Crawford came up, and you if you listen to the Schmorgoliesborg episode, I don't really want Crawford. Like, I feel like I'm just afraid about Darling. Like, what? For whatever reason, I'm not necessarily sure I want Crawford. Also, maybe Chicago's not going to be as good as they were last year. But then he was going for so little. Like, it was $16 I ended up getting for him. Like, so I guess the bid was $15. And I was just like, man, in my list that I had made, I had him for like $20 or $22. I thought this is too good of a deal to get. So I bought Corey Crawford for $16. And then I kind of regretted it because I didn't really want Corey Crawford, but it was a good value pick, I guess. Well, and the thing about that value is all that sort of downside in your head is built into the price you paid for him. So like even if he does, you know, maybe loses some starts and isn't as good, you only paid 15 for him. You weren't you're not getting disappointed by a, you know, $25 player or a $22 player. You're just getting a $15 player. Yeah, I guess that's some consolation. But still, if at the end of the day, I'm losing my goalie categories, you know, it's not going to make me feel too much better. But I guess I get what you're saying. And maybe it depends on the position. Maybe with goalie, you shouldn't go for value as much since you only are going to pick like three goalies. You want to have solid goaltending as opposed to with a forward where one forward that doesn't do that well, but you got him at a good deal doesn't hurt your chances of getting other forwards. Right. Yeah, the the skater positions are much more flexible than than goalies. With goalies, you're you're kind of limited to to what you're going to get with them. So then I guess, okay, my last question for you then is, when you, do you go into an auction draft knowing which players you want? Like, because it seems like, and I think what I was trying to do, which ended up kind of blowing up in my face, is I was going a lot for these bargains. And so a lot of the really good players just kept on going by because they kept on going for a lot of money. But at the same time, maybe I should have just been like, I want Eric Carlson. I'm going to get Eric Carlson. So all of that to say, my question is, should you have an idea of who you want to get or should you really just be, oh, this is a good deal. Let me get this guy. Oh, this is a good deal. Let me get this guy. And you might end up with a roster completely different than what you were expecting. Well, it is generally good to hunt for bargains. But the problem you can end up with if you're bargain hunting is you can end up leaving money on the table. And what that means is you can get to the end of the draft when you you've been just bargain hunting the whole time and you know yeah you you know got this guy for two or three dollars under projection and you know this guy for five dollars cheaper and oh man look at this guy i got for a dollar or two but i've got thirty dollars left and there's only dollar players available like that happened to me in a in a football league once and i ended up spending you know using my last thirty dollars on a kicker who should have been a dollar <laughs> like right but you just had nothing else to spend it on yeah i was like well i guess i'm gonna get the kicker i want and that's that's gonna work so like those bargains you know that you know extra thirty dollars or whatever you don't get to take that with you and so you've kind of lost all that value so that's why i think it is good to have some players at least at like or groups of players at certain price points you want to target yeah i think that sounds like the best strategy you need to sort of have your tiers you know that you want to get one player from this tier at least at this price and then one from this so then if you see a good bargain in a tier that you're still looking for then you can grab him but if you see a good bargain on like a defenseman when you, when you already have great defensemen and you're looking for forwards now or a right wing, you know, you don't want to just go blindly for value. You want to have some sort of strategy involved. So there is a lot of prep beforehand. You got to get your tiers. You got to get your budget. But leads to a really fun draft and you could be really successful if you're smart. This is definitely the kind of draft where you can outsmart your opponents as opposed to, I guess, in a snake draft. Obviously, you can also. But even the guy who auto drafts is going to end up with a pretty decent roster. We had one auto draft. Yeah, talk about leaving money on the table. Yeah, yeah. we had one <laughs> auto drafter in our mock draft. One guy didn't show up, and his team, he didn't... I don't even know how ESPN's algorithm works, and he outbid people on some and not on others. His most expensive player was Mark Stone at $17, and he basically just got a whole bunch of... He got some good value at the end, no doubt about it. Actually, that's a great example of what you're talking about. You got Derek Stepan for $4, Jason Pominville for $3, Ryan Newton Hopkins for 7 Patrick Sharp for 8 These are all pretty great deals. I think. But then at the end of the day, he had so much money left over. He didn't have any high end guys. Yeah, you only spent like $60 in the whole draft or something. Yeah. So that's an extreme example. That's also why uh, show up for your auction draft. Uh, there is a thing that'll bid automatically. It's based on the the sort of pre-assigned values. 
but it will not account for auction dynamics at all. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I was thinking I was just about to say goodbye, but I realized we never actually got into who to nominate. So very quickly, like when it's your turn to nominate, I guess we did sort of talk about whether you want to nominate the guy you want or to wait for him, depending on if it's an aggressive or a conservative draft. But do you have any other strategies in terms of determining who to nominate when it's your turn? Yeah, I think sort of the most common thing is you want to get money off the table. In a lot of ways, like if if you want to get values later, you want people to bid aggressively on guys early. So like typically the most expensive guys go earlier in the draft. Also, because just those are the guys you really build your team around. And, you know, you want to kind of know if you got a high goals guy versus a high assist guy and how you want to get, you know, fill in the rest of those categories. But there's another thing you can do in nominating a player, which uh, I tried to do, but it failed because the draft, draft was way too aggressive. And that's called freezing. This is kind of an advanced thing where you try to just put a player out at basically market rate maybe a little above and hope that just scares everyone off and everyone else is just like that's more than my thing says and like before they you know can really get to think about it too much you get the player so i tried to do that i threw out carlson for 40 which was a few dollars higher than you know what the defaults had him at and what even my projections had him at but i was going to try to spend all my you know a bunch of money on defensemen he got bid up to 48 and that took that strategy out the window but i've definitely heard of it working in in other leagues particularly like there's some baseball expert leagues that, A, because they're experts, they tend a little more conservative. But where people have done that, where, you know, they'll just, you know, throw out Clayton Kershaw for, you know, 40 and just they just get him because everyone's like, yeah, I, I don't want to spend that much on him. The advantage of that is, is if you get the player you want, sometimes just people not being engaged in the bidding will affect the price. Like once you've bid for, you know, three or four times on a guy, you're more likely to go that extra dollar than if you were just watching other people bid. Oh, you're getting into the psychology a little bit. That makes sense. Yeah, I like that. So once the person's already started bidding, if you put the guy out for a dollar, he's like, oh, okay, I'll take some bids. And then he's already excited. Oh, maybe I will get this Clayton Kershaw, who, by the way, I suck. I don't even know who that is because I don't follow baseball. (laughs) He's the best player, best pitcher in baseball. Oh, well, I'm in Toronto. (laughs) So as far as I've been told, it's this guy named Price, not Carey Price. (laughs) But yeah, that makes sense as opposed to if the bid comes out. Also, like what you said about the bid comes out, you're like, oh, that seems a little high. Everyone's thinking, oh, that seems a little high and the next thing you know three two one going going gone yeah huh okay i like this already that's called the freezing strategy i wonder if that's going to happen at all in our keeping carlson league the thing is you're telling all of your strategies and then you're going to be competing against 13 (laughs) other people in a draft now so i'll be very curious to hear maybe we could get you back on after to talk about how your real draft went i don't mind talking about the general strategy of it because really the skill comes into navigating those dynamics once you're in the draft definitely knowing they're coming helps. Uh, But there's still a lot of decision making on the fly that you have to do. Right, which I think we've covered all this deciding what to do based on if people have been bidding aggressively or not. Okay, this has been a very loaded interview with so much information. Yeah, and there's so much more I could go into. We didn't really talk about punting categories, but I think people know what that's generally about. It's just suffices to say it's easier in an auction when you have more control over what players are going to take. Like you can just, I'm not going to get guys who are good at category X. Right, you can really focus on the guys for the categories you want. That makes sense. Yep. Okay, but yeah, that's enough. We got to <laughs> leave people wanting more or something, or we could go on forever probably talking about auction drafts. So thank you, Jeff, so much for coming to join me. If people want to ask you any questions about anything you said on the show, uh, how can they get in contact with you? Uh, yeah, well, you can throw it up on the, the patron group. That's pretty easy. Uh, I'm Jeff Good. Uh, I'm at Guppy on Twitter. I'm, I pay attention to that probably more than I should during the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, that's great. So that's at Low Guppy. Yep. Thanks again for joining us and good luck at your draft. Yeah, thanks for having me. Wow, and there you have it. We now have a complete set of draft strategy talk. We had our previous episode about how to draft well for snake drafts. And now, Elon, thanks to you and Jeff, we have a guide for how to draft well in auction formats. Thank you very much for doing that, Jeff. We really appreciate your expertise. Yeah, I definitely feel sorry for the patrons who will be competing with him, though I'm sure some of our patrons have a lot of experience themselves. That's what's going to make the Cuckupful such an exciting league to be in. So much intense competition. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode of Keeping Carlson. We are inching our way to the start of the regular season. We've already mentioned that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. 
We've thanked the patrons. We've asked for the five-star review on iTunes. We've thanked you for listening. So I think that's everything we need to do. I really hope you guys enjoyed the show. Tweet at us. Let us know. At Keeping Carlson. We'd love to get any feedback that you have. But with that, let's cue the outro music. And Brian, read us the credits. Okay, this episode of Keeping Carlson was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, War on Ice, Hockey Analysis, ESPN, and Yahoo Sports Fantasy Hockey. Great job as always, Brian. And we will be back with another episode next week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep on keeping Carlson. 